Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, let's begin with a brief uh, history lesson here, okay? So it's, it's 1947. There was a couple of boys in the desert in Israel, just outside an area called Qumran. And they're walking with their goats. And uh, probably like they had done a hundred times before, uh, one of them picks up a rock and he throws it into one of the caves nearby. And uh, this time the rock hits something inside the cave and it makes a smash sound. And the boy's like, what in the world's that? And he does it again, picks up another rock. He throws it inside the cave, another smash. And uh, so the boys are like, wow, what's, something's in there. What did we hit? And so they go and they climb inside the cave, uh, which were probably very familiar to these guys and many of the people in their community, but had never been inside. And he climbs down inside the cave and um, finds this, this clay jar. And as they bring it out, they, they open it up and they pull out this lump of rolled up, you know, f- fabric and pa- or paper, ancient paper. And they, he, he looks at it and it's got this writing on it. It's like, a, like an ancient form of Hebrew. And uh, he realizes he's, he's found something really strange and unusual. Well, long story short, that is essentially how the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, okay? And over time, as they excavated these and a whole bunch of other caves, archeologists have have found thousands of ancient documents. And some of those include multiple copies of the books that we include now in our Old Testament. And what's really interesting and cool and, and important about this discovery is that the copies that were part of the Dead Sea Scrolls library are in some cases like a thousand years older than the oldest copies that we had at the time. So this is a really important discovery uh, for verifying the reliability of Scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a super important discovery. Now, where did they come from? Who, who put them there? It's, well, there's lots of theories. The leading theory is that the Dead Sea Scrolls belonged to this religious group called the Essenes. The Essenes were really dedicated to to God. They didn't really want much to do with with the culture. In fact, when the Romans, in just about 100 years before Jesus, when they moved in and conquered Judea, the Essenes saw what was likely to happen and they were like, no, bye, and they left Jerusalem, they left the city, they move out to the desert so that they could worship God and so that they could study God's word. You know, what's interesting about these Essenes is as they were facing persecution and oppression from the Romans, they would take the Habakkuk scroll and the places where Habakkuk references the Chaldeans, they would substitute Romans. And they found that that helped prepare them for the suffering that they would face later. In fact, years after this, in the year AD 70, when the Roman Empire came in order to wipe out the Essenes, the Essenes were ready for them. Their faith in God held on and was strong because of how they had studied Habakkuk. They could have avoided all kinds of pain and suffering and hardship. All they would have had to do is promise to worship Caesar, and they didn't. They didn't. Rome came along and was cruel and merciless, and the only thing that survived from the Essenes was their scrolls. And it's interesting, you know, they would would rather suffer with God 
You know, they would rather suffer and endure hardship in faith than have a life of ease without God. And you know why? Part of why is because Habakkuk helped them. That, that doesn't mean that they welcomed the Romans. It doesn't mean that they loved what they were going through. Uh, but they knew that whatever this is, whatever the reasons why this is happening, this is not a surprise to God. And God is in this somehow. God is preparing them to suffer well. God is preparing them to meet him in glory. And that allowed, that helped the Essenes to go through it. And you know, that's, that's a choice. That doesn't just happen. That's, that's a choice actually that's being made all over the world right now. You and I, we may never face what the Essenes uh, went through or what, the, what uh, Judah went through from the Chaldeans, but you and I are going to make a choice before the end of the day. Would we rather have difficulty with God or would we rather have ease without him? Like, could we accept suffering in faith in God, trusting God, or should we try to avoid suffering uh, without him? That's really, a, that's a question that you and I are going to make before the end of the day. You know, there's a, a Christian theologian and philosopher in the U.S. Her name is Eleanor Stump. She literally wrote the book on evil and suffering. And uh, she recently, in fact, she wrote multiple books on evil and suffering. But she's, uh, she recently gave an interview where she explains why people of faith shouldn't run from suffering. And she used the example of children. She says, if you think about your own children, you begin to have some idea of how to look at this problem in a different way. So you get a magic lamp. Suppose you get a magic lamp. It's Aladdin's magic lamp. And the genie appears and says, what do you like? What would you like me to, would you like me to make it the case that for each one of your children, they never have any suffering? No skinned knees, no failure to get a valentine at school on Valentine's Day. No disappointments, no heartbreak. Would you like that? Because I can do that. And she goes on and she says, and then you're going to think to yourself, well, would a human being without any kind of suffering really be a human being I hope my children will be? Now listen to this from Eleanor Stump. She says, if God is good and has a care for his creatures... His overriding concern must be to ensure that not that they live as long as possible or that they suffer as little pain as possible in this life, but rather that they live in such a way as ultimately to bring them to union with God. Do you hear that? Eleanor Stump is saying that God's overriding concern mustn't be to, to protect people, his, his people from pain, but to help us live in such a way as ultimately to bring us to union with him. Well, we'll come back to that and see, is that true based on scripture? But today, again, we're continuing through our study of Habakkuk. Last week, Habakkuk had prayed, you know, why, God? Why are you allowing this? And how long before you save us? We saw that, um, you know, God welcomes his children to pray this way because God relates to us as a father. Even though we don't know how we, we don't realize how we sound, even though we don't realize what we're asking, God welcomes us to pray this way. And today we get to study God's answer, God's response, okay? Now, spoiler, this isn't going to fix the problem for Habakkuk. It's not going to take away his problem of suffering. But you know what I'd love to happen today? I would love for it to happen that we become persuaded uh, that a world where evil and suffering happen but are controlled by God, that's better than a world where these things happen and God doesn't control it.
Okay, that's kind of my thesis today. A world where evil and suffering happen, and they're controlled by God, they're measured out by God. That's, as hard as that is, that's still better than a world where evil and suffering happen, and God can't do anything about it, or won't do anything about it. That's my thesis. And so, in order to kind of demonstrate that, we need to see, first of all, what is God saying? Second of all, what is God really saying? Okay, third, who are the Chaldeans? Number four, how is this God's answer to Habakkuk? And then we're going to close with a game of uh, would you rather? Okay, so let's begin and ask what's God saying? What's God saying? I think it looks like according to the prophet, there's three things that are going on here. God is saying three things. He's doing three things. In verse five, he makes it really clear like he's doing something like Habakkuk has just been praying, God, how long will you allow these things to go on? Why don't you save us? Why don't you protect us from this evil? God is now going to say, I am. I am doing something. In fact, in verse 5, he says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Like, I'm doing something. I am, I am doing something, Habakkuk, but you're not going to believe it. If I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand. Another thing that God is saying in verse, is in verse 6. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising them up. Well, you might ask, well, what does that look like, that God is raising up the Chaldeans? I, I picture it based on the language. Like a, it's like a, like a kid who is playing with some action figures, okay? And, and the kid picks up an action figure out of the toy box because that's the perfect bad guy for the story. Okay, so like imagine it's like it's Lex Luthor or Joker or Darth Vader or something like that. And, and he picks it up because that's the bad guy that he needs for his story. I think that's what it means that God is raising up the Chaldeans. But now imagine, okay, like try to understand how the child relates to the action figure and how the action figure relates to the child. If you could ask the action figure, hey, where, do you know where you're going right now? Like, do you, what, are you, what are you up to? Where are you going? What are you doing? I, what he would say is, I am going to destroy Batman or Spider-Man or He-Man or whatever it is. Like, I, I'm gonna, I'll take them out. I'll destroy them. I'll make them suffer if it's the last thing that I do. Right? That's, that's what he would say. And if you could ask that action figure... But don't you realize that you're an action figure in somebody else's hands? They can't compute that. that, that would, the action figure has no category for that. They can't possibly understand that. In the same way, that's what it looks like that God has raised up the Chaldeans. God didn't consult the Chaldeans first. He just, he's not going to take a vote among the Chaldeans. He just raises them up for his, for his purposes. And yet they're not robots. You know, they're not acting against their will. They're about to do exactly what they want to do, which is they want to go and attack and destroy the Judeans. And this is an example of where the, you know, the Chaldeans and their evil choices and God's sovereign purposes, they line up perfectly. They're not, they're not in conflict. There's no contradiction here. Okay. So God's raising up the Chaldeans in, in verse 6. Another thing that God is saying here is in verse, in verse 12, God has sent them for judgment. This is now Habakkuk's voice, not, not God's voice explicitly, but Habakkuk says 
You have ordained them as a judgment, verse 12. You have established them for reproof. Now, this is Habakkuk's interpretation. He's giving meaning to what God has said. Now, at this point, we need to be really careful and specific. I think in order to avoid false teaching or heresy, or in order to avoid making God responsible for evil or sin, we need to be really specific about the language and and even translation that we're using. So I want to take a minute and ask, what's God really saying? What's God really saying? Now, there's a couple of issues here. I just want, I want to take a minute and highlight, okay? We're going to be Bible scholars here for a minute, all right? Because every once in a while, there is a bit of a discrepancy between English versions, and that discrepancy affects the meaning. It doesn't happen super often, but it, but it does happen, and here's an example. And so if you've got your, ver- your Bible version in front of you, this is going to be really helpful, especially if you can open a, f- a couple of different versions at the same time, maybe on your phone. But up on the screen, I've got a side-by-side of a couple of different versions. One is the English Standard Version on the left. I've got the Christian Standard Bible on the right. And, uh, and I've got highlighted the part where it says, We shall not die in verse 12. Okay, do you see that? So in verse 12 of the ESV, it, it quotes Habakkuk as saying, We shall not die. In the CSB, and, and there's other modern versions that say this, um, it's got Habakkuk saying, you shall not die about God. You shall not die. Now, those are not the same, right? Now, so we should ask, well, which is it? Which is it? And, and you know, we could look at which translation is reflected in the, mo- the greatest number of ancient copies. Or we could ask which uh, translation is the most ancient. Like, of, of all the copies that we have, which which, uh, which translation is reflected by the most ancient copies. And it turns out that the most ancient sources, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, don't say about God, you shall not die. They actually say, we shall not die. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, maybe by show of hands, you have a version of, of the Bible in front of you where Habakkuk 1.12 says, we shall not die. Yeah, a few of you, good. How many of you have a version that says, you shall not die? Okay, so a couple. So that's interesting, right? There's another issue, though, even bigger. This one is at the end of verse 12. Because here, at the end of verse 12, the Christian Standard Bible, the translators, they add a nuance. They add a word that isn't actually there in the most ancient manuscripts. They say, they add the word us. They add, so what they're saying is, that God has destined the Chaldeans to execute judgment. God has ordained them to punish us. Okay, now that's kind of important. Because the meaning there, what, what they think Habakkuk is saying is that God is doing one thing here in raising up the Chaldeans. The one thing that God is doing is he's punishing us. And you're like, really though? Because it turns out, in the most ancient versions, Habakkuk is intentionally vague. And so the ESV is is right actually to leave off the word us and to say instead that God has established them for for judgment, God has destined them for reproof. Because as we read that, it's more ambiguous, it's it's more vague, and so it could be, maybe it's Judah's judgment, but maybe it's the judgment of the Chaldeans. Right? It could be, could be either. It could be both. 
In fact, later on, a centuries, centuries later, when the Essenes are out in uh, Qumran and they're studying the Habakkuk scroll and they apply this to their own context and Rome is attacking them, they would substitute the Chaldeans for the Romans and they believed that God had raised up the Romans for the judgment of the Essenes, yes, but also for the Romans. And the point here is that God isn't just doing one thing as is reflected in, in some of the more modern versions, God is doing many things. Okay, There's a, this, this matters, right? First, I hope that as you read scripture, like in your daily quiet times, for example, I hope that you will read from, I hope you'll mix it up and read from a few different versions. I think many, reading from many versions is like hearing God's word in many voices. Okay, so I, I would encourage you, mix it up. But the other reason why it's important to address and, and kind of highlight these nuances is because Without it, we don't realize what God's doing. God is actually doing many things here, not just one. So we don't want a Bible version that uh, puts words in God's mouth. We want it to be clear that God is doing many things here, not just one. When God is sending the Chaldeans against Judah, he is going to accomplish a thousand things through that that wouldn't happen if God didn't. Uh, decide that that should happen. And so it's, it's not just one thing, it's many things. It's nuanced, it's complex. And that's exactly what we would expect. That's what God is really doing. Now let's look at, back at the text and see uh, who are these Chaldeans? Who are we talking about here? Where the, the, the Chaldeans, they fight for Babylon. They are they're sort of a sub-nation that was absorbed into the Babylonian Empire at some point. And, you know, whereas when, when the king of Babylon usually wants someone to fight for him, he offers them gold, he offers them, you know, women, he offers them the, the glory of, you know, uh, of, of, of being part of history. Well, for the Chaldeans, the violence and the conquest itself is the reward. That's, that's who we're talking about here. Notice how God describes these people in verses 6 through 11, okay? Verses 6 through 11, God says that they are bitter and hasty. These are, these are like the ancient colonizers. They go anywhere and they steal and they kill and they do whatever they like and they take whatever, they take these things that don't belong to them. Verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. Their, their sense of justice comes from themselves, he says. In other words, they, they make their own rules. Nobody can tell them what to do. They do what they like. Verse 8 talks about their horses and their horsemen, which are just so impressive. You know, nobody can compete with these guys. In verse 9, it talks about how they take captives that are like the sand on the shore. All right? In verse 10, they scoff at kings. They laugh at rulers. They're described as being guilty. Like their own might is their God. They don't worship anybody except themselves and their own power. That's who we are talking about here. They're pure violence and evil personified. That's who God is raising up. That's who he's going to send against his own covenant people. And you're like, because I am, you're like, is that okay? Like, is that even, is that even okay? Like, and, and so at this point, we need to ask, what, how could this be an answer to Habakkuk's prayer? Like, of all the ways that God might have answered Habakkuk, is this, is this the best? Is this the, is this the truth? It, it sounds like God is saying, all right, Habakkuk, I'll tell you what I'm doing, but it's not going to help. Not only is it not going to help, but you're not going to believe it. And I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans for judgment. Like, that's not an explanation, is it? Like, it's a picture 
it's a it's a narrative, but it's not an answer. It's a, it's God giving him Habakkuk this picture of this almost like unstoppable army of bad guys that he raised up, and you're like, how is this a satisfying answer to Habakkuk's prayer? Well, I, I have some reasons why I think it is. The first is because I think it's it shows that there is justice with God after all. There is justice. Um, and, and this proves it. You know, we could look at the example from the life of, the, of Job. Job uh, is, a, is a long book in the Old Testament that tells the story of, of this intense suffering that Job went through. And after all that he went through, he, comes, he decides that he comes actually to a similar conclusion as to, to what Habakkuk did in the previous chapter. Maybe there's no justice after all. Maybe God can't do what he wants after all. Maybe God isn't doing his job. And in the book of Job, God speaks and corrects Job and says, Job, you don't ask the questions here. You don't question me. I'm the one who questions you, okay? Can you do what I do? Like, I am God here. I'm the one who summons the storm. I'm the one who takes that sea monster, Leviathan, and I'm, I control him with a fish hook, remember? Like, I'm the one who takes that big beast, behemoth, and I, I'm the one who treats him like a pet, okay? That's who I am. That's how God responds to Job. And, and here, to Habakkuk, this is God saying, I'm the one who raises up the Chaldeans. All right, Habakkuk? And I think when we're honest to God, I think that sometimes it feels like there's no justice. It feels like nothing matters. It feels like we live in a random universe where stuff just happens. And so, once in a while, God corrects us by saying, Hey, Job, go ahead and weep and mourn and feel what you feel. Uh, Habakkuk, go ahead, weep and mourn and cry out to me. But don't for a second think that I don't know what I'm doing. All right? God knows what he's doing. There is justice. God knows what he's doing for Job and for Habakkuk and for Judah and for you and I. There is justice with God. I think another reason why this is an important and a good answer to Habakkuk is because it shows that God's judgment begins at home. All right? God's judgment begins at home. Habakkuk is about to learn an important lesson, which is that judgment starts not out there, not with our kind of enemies out there, but with God's people. Now, this is something that the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And you're like, well, I thought, I thought Christians escape judgment. Peter's like, no, no, no. Judgment begins at the household of God. And I think God's answer to Habakkuk is the same. He's, Habakkuk has been crying out in prayer. And God's answer, God's response is not, I'm going to wipe out the Egyptians. I'm going to wipe out the Assyrians and the, the Babylonians. No, it's, no, no, no. We're starting here. We're starting in my house. We're not starting out there. Judgment starts right here in my house. And I think, I think that that. That's true. I think that that's how God works. If you spend any amount of time in the Bible, one of the things that I think should happen is that you learn pretty quick is that, 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 that sin and evil and wickedness, these aren't realities like out there somewhere. Isn't that true? I think as we mature in our faith, as we, be, as we, come, we come closer to God, 
I think the Holy Spirit, he pulls back the curtain on our hearts and we realize that the evil that we should hate the most should be ours. Like the most dangerous evil isn't some evil out there. The most dangerous evil, the worst evil, the one that should keep us occupied and and the one that should occupy our focus is the evil in our own hearts. Okay? And so I think I think this I think this shows us that God's judgment begins at home where it needs to. I think a third reason why God's answer is a good one is because I think it shows that God's judgment is measured. It's measured. Like as, as tough and as mean and brutal as the Chaldeans are, it's not like they have free reign to do absolutely whatever they want. Okay? The Chaldeans don't have carte blanche. They they think that they do, they think they're unstoppable. They think nobody can get in their way, but that's not true. What they don't realize is they are on a leash. They're on a leash because God's judgment is measured. We know that God's judgment is measured because Habakkuk has this confidence that as bad as things are going to get, that they're going to come through this. In fact, he says in verse 12, he cries out, God, are you not from everlasting? Like, You've always been there. You always will be there. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die, O Lord. Like in light of the eternal nature of God, Habakkuk knows that they're not going to die. He calls God his rock. Like you can't be beaten. You can't be broken. You don't change. When you make a decision, it stands. Nobody can stop or withstand you. And that's so true. That's exactly how God is. See, when God decides the Chaldeans are going to sweep across the land, that's what's going to happen. And when God decides it's time to crush the Chaldeans, that's what's going to happen. Because they are not sovereign. He is. And when God decides that time is up for the Judeans, it will be. But until then, Habakkuk can say, we shall not die. Okay? When God decides that it's time up for me, the time's up for me, then it will be. But until then, I know I shall not die, and neither shall you. And I think that that's so important and helpful. When, when we're suffering, we might wonder, how long is this going to go on? Like, is, this, is this ever going to stop? It will stop. It's not going to go on forever. It's measured. In fact, it's not going to last one second longer than it is supposed to. As long as God is on the throne, you and I, we can rest assured evil and violence are going to come to an end. It's measured. And a fourth reason I think we can receive God's response to Habakkuk as good news here is because without evil, there is no cross. Without evil, there's no cross. You know, one of the things that I realize at this point in my faith is that The people who stick with God are people who can handle that we have a God who can raise up evil people. He can measure out their evil. He can keep it from going on too long. He can keep it from going on not long enough. You know, and he can also do so in such a way that doesn't make him guilty of sin and doesn't, you know, excuse those people from responsibility. Now, do I know how that works? No. I don't know how that works. Can I explain that, you know, easily and intellectually? No, I can't. Of course I can't. Because I don't see what God sees. 
There are some things that are just too big for our minds. There are some things that I think we can't understand, and yet they are nevertheless true. And this is one. We call this a paradox. It's a, another, we, it's a mystery. Mystery works not on our, our intellectual brain, but on our imaginative brain. So let this mystery hit us and land on us and move us to worship because we need it to. We need to really meditate on this mystery for a minute because it's all over the place. This is the God we've got. Think about it, okay? Back in Genesis, God raises up Joseph's 11 brothers to abandon him and leave him in a pit or a well. And then after Joseph saves Egypt, God judges his brothers for how they treated Joseph. Do you remember that? In Exodus, God raises up Pharaoh and hardens his heart so that Pharaoh isn't going to release the Israelites from slavery. And then, after God does this amazing rescue, then he crushes and judges Egypt for not releasing the Israelites. Do you remember that? So then in Isaiah, another example, in Isaiah, God is going to raise up this empire called the Assyrians, and they're going to attack Israel and scatter them. And then, because of how you know, violently and how proudly and arrogantly the Assyrians attacked Israel, God is going to punish the Assyrians. You remember that? And then of all places, I think the place where we see this mystery most clearly is at the cross. The cross. The apostles Peter and John, they gave their account, their explanation of how and why the cross happens in a sermon that they gave in Acts chapter 4. They say, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, just in case you think you heard that wrong, no. They're saying that in this city, in Jerusalem, were gathered together against Jesus, uh, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And I just want us to understand, if God isn't allowed to raise up people to do evil, there is no way Jesus Christ ends up on a cross. Right? God raises up Judas to betray him on Thursday. God raises up soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden. God raised up Pontius Pilate on Friday, this total coward and loser. And he, you know, participates in this whole thing. He sacrifices Jesus willingly, not because he is a fan of what God is doing. He's not part of, he doesn't believe he's contributing to redemption history. He just wants to save his job. And God raised up Herod. Herod is a total diva and a corrupt, lustful, greedy king. He doesn't give up Jesus because he believes Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's, a, he's angry at Jesus because Jesus wouldn't do magic tricks for him. And then later that day, God raised up a crowd who's going to shout, crucify him. And we could go on and on and on. And this has got to be the most evil act ever perpetrated on earth. And it, it happened because... In Acts 4, 28, 
That's what God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. That was God's choice. That's what he wanted to happen, and that's why it did. Everybody involved is still responsible for their choices. Herod and Pilate are still responsible for what they did and said, and it was designed by God. And I hope that that will work on our imagination. I hope that that will land on us, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our souls. Folks, that's our God. That's the God we worship. And he hears our prayer. Now, this is a piece by an artist named Gustav Dere. You've probably seen his art before. I use it quite a bit. Um, I just think it's great. You probably don't realize, though, the, the process that's involved in making a, a masterpiece like this, okay? So the first step is the artist has to choose a block of wood. Sometimes maybe it's copper. And, and he's going to use a, a pencil, and he's going to draw his design on the block, okay? And then he's going to use some, some knives and chisels and stuff. He's going to scratch and cut and engrave that image, engrave that design into the board, into the plate, the next thing he's going to do is he's going to take that plate and he's going to dip it into acid in order to, to harden it and to seal it and to prepare it for ink. And after he wipes away the acid, then he's going to take a big roller and he's going to cover the whole plate in this thick black ink. And once he wipes away the, the excess ink, he's going to take a piece of paper and he's going to put it over the board and he's going to put the whole thing under a press. He's going to take a big wheel and crank that wheel and it's going to press down onto the paper and onto the plate and squeeze it so that the ink moves from the, from the block onto the paper and is absorbed into the paper. He's going to uncrank the press. He's going to take the paper off. He's going to hang it up to dry. And once it's done, it's a masterpiece. Now, that's a lot to go through. I sure wouldn't want to be the paper I sure wouldn't want to be the block, except there is no other way, all right? You, you don't get a masterpiece like this if the wood isn't allowed to be scratched and covered in ink and pressed and dipped in acid and hung to dry. That's what it takes. And if that's the cost, if that's what's involved in the, the process of making a piece of art like this, what's got to be the process of making and preparing God's masterpiece, which you are. You are 10 million times more precious to God, more important to God, more valuable to God than this piece of art. So let me ask you, which would you rather? All right? You're Habakkuk right now, okay? The Chaldeans are coming. God's given you that picture. Now that's got to work on your imagination. That's God's answer to your prayer. As you process that, you're going to tell yourself something to make sense of it. We always do. You're going to tell yourself something. You're going to paint a picture. One of these pictures is going to be true of you. See, in, in one picture, we come into the kingdom and we meet Jesus Christ and he has the wounds in his hands and his feet because he went to the cross for us. And on the cross, he died to protect us from all of the bad stuff, okay? In this scenario, Jesus died so that we would never have to suffer. We never had to face any Chaldeans. We never faced any rejection or failure. We were never hungry or poor. We were never hurt, okay? We were never lonely. 
And in this scenario, in this picture, we meet Christ and we praise him and we say, thank you, Jesus, for protecting me from all that stuff. I hear it's awful, but I'll never know. And, I'm, and I have you to thank for it. Thank you. What a savior. So that's one picture. Here's another. We, we come into the kingdom, bruises and scratches and, 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 and filthy. And, and when we're face to face with Jesus, we want to we turn away because we feel overcome by how much of a sense we, we just don't belong there. We feel guilt maybe for the things that we've done or maybe for the things that were done to us. We want to turn away from him and he won't let us. And when we get the words together, we say to Jesus, wow, now I see your wounds and I see your wounds next to my own wounds and I realize I did that to you. Now I realize what mercy and grace and forgiveness is. And I'm not, I'm not glad for what happened to me. I'm not proud of the things that I did. But now that I see you, now I know that you were preparing me. You were preparing me for you. All those cuts and scratches and the failures. You were, you were making me a masterpiece. What a savior. One of these is, is painless and is going to give way to, to glory. There is some glory in that first scenario. One of these, though, is painful. And when the pain gives way, the glory after is that much more glorious. And I just want to ask as we close, which would you rather? Let's pray, okay? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.